Gospel of John, so go ahead and get your Bibles out and turn with me to the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that Black Pew Bible home with you and read it. You're also welcome to use the Bible app or the internet as long as you promise not to respond when a tweet or a Facebook notification pops up on your phone while you're trying to read the Bible on your phone. Okay. This morning's sermon is going to be in verses 1 through 3 of the first chapter of John. So let's read those together now. Follow along with me as I read out loud. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This is God's holy, inspired inerrant and infallible word, and it is completely sufficient for our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning to not be stony ground hearers. Would you open up our spiritual eyes, our spiritual ears? Would you remove any of the detritus from the world that we brought in with us that may be crowding out the truth of your word in our hearts? Would you alleviate our fears? Would you calm our doubts? Would you soothe our anxieties with your truth this morning? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, In the classic novel, Frankenstein, written by Mary Shelley, Mary Shelley tells the story of one Victor Frankenstein, a man who becomes obsessed with the study of chemistry and the secrets that it may reveal about the very nature of life itself. After a time of intense investigation, Dr. Frankenstein has a eureka moment. He discovers the secret of human animation. He learns how to give the spark of life back to the dead. Dr. Frankenstein demonstrates his proof by assembling a male human body out of the body parts of various corpses, and then, and then he brings it to life. Now, although Mary Shelley never tells the reader what exactly it is that, that brings a spark of life into this dead creature's body, the old black and white movie imagines that force to be electricity, lightning, you know. It's alive, it's alive, that thing. There's too many young people here. Nobody really knows what I'm talking about, but ask your grandparents or something. Now, this idea that it could have been electricity, lightning, it's not an entirely crazy idea considering the fact that our bodies are, in one sense, just a massive electrical system from our brains all the way out through the axons and dendrites of our nervous system. Still, in the year 2021, for all of our advances in the sciences of chemistry, biology, anatomy, and physiology, we are no closer to discovering what animates, what gives life to this human body. So I ask you this morning, maybe you know, what gives us life? I'm an organism. You are an organism. 
And as organisms, we are composed of, you guessed it, organs. Liver, pancreas, skin, brain, heart. Somehow, someway, these big bags of bone and organs, liquids, we are alive. How? Consider a watch with me for a moment. Consider a wristwatch or a pocket watch or any kind of watch. The thing around Flavor Flav's neck on the chain. To someone unfamiliar with the technology of a timepiece, you can imagine a person looking at a watch and thinking that this thing is alive. Two hands moving seamlessly and with synchronicity around the face of the timepiece. A watchmaker, however, could explain to the uninitiated person that no, it's not really alive, it's just a work of technology. Really, there's a spring in the timepiece which has been loaded with tension and then it releases the tension and then that moves several gears and then the gears turn the handles in perpetual motion. So although we could look at the watch and see movement, something that appears to be life, or we could look at a car and see locomotion, we know that these things do not within themselves possess life. So what is it that gives us life? Maybe it has something to do with ourselves, you know. But what, what animates those? What powers the mitochondria? What moves the lysosomes? What gives life to the Golgi apparatus? Golgi? Golgi? I don't know. The closer we look at the constituent parts of the cell, the less we seem to understand. Cells are made of atoms, so maybe it's the atoms that give us life. Okay, but what causes the atoms to move? And what causes the stuff inside of the atoms to move? I mean, what causes the electrons to spin around the nucleus of the cell? What gives them life? Let's do a little thought experiment. Imagine with me for a moment that you set out on your own Frankenstein experiment, wherein you try to give life to a human being that you've made out of various and sundry parts. Right? You've gotten the liver and the skin and the hands and the arms and the feet and the brains, and you try to put a human together like the pieces of a watch. What would you do in this experiment to give life to such an assembly? What tincture could you apply to cause the RNA molecules to move up and down, unzipping the DNA molecules so that they would repl replicate? What could you do to elicit the production of the immune system within the bones of the body? How could you fire up the electrical powerhouse that is the brain. In the once wildly popular but now totally lame Transformer franchise, there is something known as the AllSpark. In the Transformers universe, the AllSpark is a cube that can transmit energon, and please don't come up to me afterwards and correct me about this. I think this is how it goes. Comic book nerds desist. And the allspark can give energon, or the thing that gives life, it can give it to anything, to all things inanimate, including electronics, which is, you know, the reason why a yellow Camaro can turn into Bumblebee and have its own successful spin-off spin franchise. Well, friends, what is our 
allspark? What is it that gives humans and plants and animals and viruses and galaxies and quarks and quasars? What is it that gives us life? The answer is Jesus. The Gospel of John begins with these words. In the beginning. Now, the words in the beginning, here in the Greek, they're identical to the first words in Hebrew in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. In the beginning. Right? It goes, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that, this is not an accident. John didn't just happen to use the same phrase at the beginning of his gospel. No, this was very intentional. He wants his readers to see as soon as their eyes hit the page that this Jesus that they're going to be reading about for the next 20-something chapters, this Jesus is the same God who was present at the beginning of all creation. He is the agent of creation. He is the God of creation. John wants his readers, his listeners, to understand that the same God who was there in the primordial abyss has now come to earth for creation's second act, the recreation of the universe after it was ruined by sin. Now, if you go back and you examine this morning's text, which we read together to begin the sermon, you may think to yourself, well, Sean, that's funny because you're saying that he wants us to see Jesus, but as I'm looking at the text, I don't see Jesus. I don't see Jesus' name anywhere in these first three verses. I just see him, and I see the word. Well, let's explore that for a moment. You don't have to be an expert in Greek or even uh, an astute biblical exegete to see that the word that John is referencing here in these first three verses is Jesus himself. Okay, so how do we get there? All you have to do is keep reading. If you wanted to, you could just read all the way down to verse 14. Go ahead and turn there with me, look at it. And you can see that this word that John references in verses 1 through 3 is talked about this way in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so it's pretty clear if you just let John speak for himself as you continue to read through the chapter that this word that was present with God and that was God at creation, that word is Jesus. But why does John refer to him in this way? Why doesn't he just say Jesus? In the beginning there was Jesus. And Jesus did all the good stuff. Why does he have to make it complicated? You should know that the Greek word behind the English word, word, you, you tracking with me <laughs> here, that the Greek word behind word is logos. Now, much ink has been spilled trying to understand why John would use the word logos here in reference to Jesus. Some would argue that, you know, John must have been influenced by Platonism, a philosophy that in some ways understood God to be a divine but impersonal force like reason itself. But in Jewish thought, the idea of the Logos would have brought to mind 
images of the God of the Bible who acted through his word so consistently that he came to be identified with his word. If you read some of the writings of the rabbis of the first century and before, right around the time of Jesus, they just talk about anywhere where the word of God is in the Old Testament, there is God himself. That's how a Jew would have understood this. And so on the very first page of the Bible, the entire story of salvation begins with God speaking. And then God speaks over and over and over again as he brings life into the earth. So turn with me back to Genesis 1. Keep your finger there in John. Turn back with me to Genesis 1. We're just going to see how God is made manifest through his word. And in verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And guess what? That's what happened. Go down to verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And guess what? It was so. Verse 11, and God said, and then we could go down to verse 14, and God said, let there be lights, and down to verse 20, and God said, let the water swarm, and verse 24, and God said, and then verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. As you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you see that the word, God speaking, is not only the agent in creation, but also the means by which God reveals himself to his people. It's the means by which God calls himself to his people. It's the means by which God initiates a relationship with his people. It is the means by which God accomplishes salvation for his people. So a Jewish reader would have come to this language about the word or the reason of God or the wisdom of God, and they would have understood all of that language to not belong to some Greek philosophical concept, but rather to God himself. And that's why John begins by not using it pronouns in reference to the word, but the pronoun him. Now, if there were a Jehovah's Witness present with us here this morning, any Jehovah's Witnesses present here this morning? No? Okay, just checking. You can raise your hand. Andrew? No? Okay. They might raise their hand and say, not so fast. In the Greek, those pronouns, they can be translated as it. It doesn't have to be him. Okay, true enough. Fair point. So then the next question might, that might be worthy of asking is, why do the English translators of our Bibles choose to translate that pronoun in reference to the word as him and not it? Is it because... They have an agenda. Is it because they're being ideologically driven to make a particular theological choice in their translation? I don't think so. I think they do that because it makes the most sense of what John is saying here in these verses. So, for example, in verse 1, the word is not only said to be with God, but the word is also said to be God. 
Now listen, it's true that we as finite creatures cannot know everything that there is to know about God. If we could, then we would be God and he would be less than us, right? That's what it means to be God. I, I can't wrap my mind around the entirety of who you are. So we do kind of see through a glass darkly when it comes to our understanding of God. That's true. But it is also true that God has revealed himself to us. He has told us not only that he is there, but also what he is like. And as God has revealed himself to us, he has not revealed himself to us as a mere force. No, God has revealed himself to us as a person. And so when John says in the verse, couple of verses here that the word is God, it would make sense then that we would use the, the pronoun him to reference the word because God is not an it. God is a he. The second reason is because verse 14 specifically tells us that this same word that was God in verse 1, that word comes down as a person in the flesh as Jesus. So that's why they put him there instead of it. So I think it's very clear, friends, that this word is not merely some force that's exuding from God. Rather, this word is God himself. More specifically, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Now, before moving on from this, I really want us to see how God, through the gospel, through his Son, through the incarnation, puts to shame both the pride of the Jews and the Greeks. So for the Jews, you know, they were God's chosen people. And because of that, they had a, a a real sense of pride in their hearts, you know, like we know God, we've been known by God, and God has chosen to reveal himself to us, and that's true. But there were certain aspects of who God was that he did not fully reveal to the Jews, that he didn't fully really reveal to anyone until he finally revealed them in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Sean, but... Isn't Christ present in the Old Testament? Yes, he is. But in kind of like a shadow form. It's not until the second person of the Trinity comes down in the flesh that we really, truly, and fully see who God is. We'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. The Jews, friends, they had a conception of God, and then they had that conception blown up by Jesus, not only because God didn't fully reveal himself, but also because they had begun to contort God. They had begun to build their own perception of who God was. And in their minds, their God, the, the one who would come to them and save them and rescue them, he would be a warrior king. He would be a king like all of our other earthly kings, even though God specifically told them when he gave them the law, hey, listen, you guys don't need a king. I'm your king, and I'm different than these other earthly kings. But still, you know how we do? We begin to make God in our own image and likeness. Ever look at the Greek pantheon? Isn't it ever strange to you how human those gods appear to be? Well, that's what the Jews began to do with the God of the Bible who had revealed himself to them. And so they were shocked and in disbelief, literally, when God came down from heaven to save them, not in the form of of an army general or a political leader, but rather in the form of a word. Not to lead a bloody revolution, but to dispense heavenly wisdom. They didn't have a category for that. 
And so they rejected the word. We'll talk about that at length next week. Then there are the Greeks. And here I'm not speaking of, you know, ethnic Greeks, people with a lot of K's in their last name. Uh, I'm talking about the whole Hellenized world. I'm referring to the dominant pagan culture, religion, and philosophy in the days of Jesus. So there was a significant strand of Greek philosophy in those days that understood God to be an impersonal force, right? We talked about that. That's Platonism, right? God is not a man or a woman or anything like that. Rather, God is just like reason, man. But in these verses, John shows his Greek readers that, yes, there is a logos. There is a reason. There is a logic behind everything in the universe. But this logos is not some impersonal force. No, the Logos is a person. So yes, the Logos is God, but what we mean when we say that, what you mean when you say that, are two very different things. Friends, it's important that we understand this as children of the Enlightenment, downstream from an entire worldview that has come to believe that reason is God. We need to understand this truth from John 1, that God did not send a syllogism into the world. He sent His Son. This is one of the reasons why many intelligent pagan thinkers of our own day can't quite come to put their trust in Jesus. They want to dissect Him like an idea. They want to treat Him like a propositional truth claim. And evaluate him according to the rules of logic as if they, fallen creatures with broken intellectual faculties, could ever render a judgment about the one from whom all logic and reason flows. Friends, if you treat God like a force, he will seem cold and distant to you. A reality to be reckoned with, perhaps, but not a God with whom you can have a relationship. If you treat God like an idea, you will interact with him conceptually and intellectually, but his words will always feel academic to you. When in reality, they are sweet like honey. They are healing like medicine. They are life-giving like the loving words from a father. Friends, in Jesus, we have something amazing. We have a word from God who is also the very person of God himself. In Jesus, God communicates himself to us. And we'll be picking up this theme again and again as we work through the book of John. Now, there are two more themes that will be coming up a lot over the coming weeks and months, and maybe even years in the Gospel of John. And, and both of these themes are bound up with one another. We're going to talk about them at length this morning. Here they are, the pre-existent nature of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. So let's look at these a little closer. As we noted earlier, the phrase, in the beginning, that should draw our mind back to Genesis 1, right? And the creation of all things. But something interesting happens when you continue to read the Gospel of John. Let's, con- let's flip back over, if you're still in Genesis, let's flip back over to John's Gospel. 
as we continue to read in this prologue, we see that John is not just drawing our attention back to creation. No, in fact, John wants us to look back before creation, a time before the beginning. Look at John 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You'll notice that John states one truth in two different ways in this verse. He says it positively, right? All things were made through him. And in case you were wondering, yeah, but what if there was something that was made that was not made through him? He goes, uh-uh, not so fast. And without him was not anything, not one single thing made that was made. So John is saying that before anything existed, before God did one single act of creation, when he was just entirely self-existent as God with nothing outside of himself, Jesus existed. You see that? Before something that we know of as time came into being, Jesus was there. Which is why, for example, in Jude, the doxology reads like this. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time. This is why you have Jesus using language like this in John 8. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That language, I am, is the same language that God used to, de to describe himself, to reveal himself to Moses. I am that I am. This refers to God's aseity, which is just a fancy theological word that means God's self-existence. You could also just talk about his timelessness. There has never been a time where God wasn't. I know it's hard to wrap your mind around that because we exist within time. That's why in John 17, Jesus says this, And now, Father glorify me in your presence, right? Like, I'm here on earth, and I want you to glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In verse 24 of that same passage, he says, you loved me before the creation of the world, which means I existed with you before creation. This is why Colossians 1, 16 through 17 reads like this. For by him all things were created. Ah, oh, it's like verbatim what we're reading here in John 1. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. The pre existent nature of the Word, who is Jesus, must necessarily mean that the Word is not a part of the created world, but beyond creation. Now, why am I driving this point home? You're probably like, Sean, we get it. You're just kicking a dead horse, right? Like, why are you driving this home? It's because we have a word to describe that which exists before all else exists, and that word is God. Which is why in verse 1, John doesn't just say that the Word was with God at creation and leave it at that. If Jesus were merely a higher order of being 
perhaps even the highest order of being, like Mormons would argue, then you would understand it would make sense. John would just say, and in the beginning, you know, the word was with God. And they just kind of leave it there. But he doesn't stop there. He says the word was with God and the word was God. If the word was with God before any creating thing, then he must in some sense be God himself. Philosophers have explored this concept at great length. It's been one of the main arguments for the existence of God. The most common expression of this idea is known as the cosmological argument. Uh, also called the first cause argument. Now, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer here, okay? I'm not a philosophizer. I can't quite make sense of a lot of this philosophy stuff, you know? So Hume or me, as I talk a little bit about it, don't give me low marks if I mess it up. Don't haggle me over it if I don't get it quite right. All right, I'll move on. That's for you, the chosen few amongst us. (laughs) The first cause or the cosmological argument basically just says that in the world, there's no such thing as an uncaused cause, right? You don't need to have a PhD in philosophy to understand that. Everything that has been caused must have been caused by something else. And and this argument says that if you trace the, cause of cha- the, excuse me, the chain of causation in the world all the way back, as far as you can go, eventually you'll end up with the first cause, the unmoved mover, the one who got the very first ball rolling. Now maybe you're going to say, Sean, but couldn't it have been the Big Bang? Couldn't that have been the first mover? Yeah, but what caused the Big Bang? There was nothing, and then nothing became something. Wait, are we doing religion now or philosophy? Because that sounds like something that I need to have a lot of faith to believe in. Well, maybe, Sean, you know, physicists these days, they're telling us that there's an infinite number of universes that have existed with an infinite regress that go back, and they have just no beginning. Theoretical physicists say stuff like this. And when they do, I think it's pretty ample evidence of just how foolish philosophy becomes when you try and suppress the the truth of God in unrighteousness. Friends, God is the first cause. He is the unmoved mover. He is the one who existed before all things. If there was a big bang, he was the one who banged it. He was the one who brought it into existence. He is the one who existed before all things. He is the one who created all things. There's no need to believe in an infinite number of universes when you can just believe the Bible. The God who made you, the God who made this universe, he told you about himself, okay? So just believe what he's told you. And by the way, if you think some stuff in the Bible is hard to believe, I just encourage you to spend some time reading theoretical physics, physics and just ask yourself which one requires more faith looking at you string theory now the gospel of john begins by pointing to jesus and saying that's him jesus is the one who was before everything else he was with god he was what he was god and as the gospel continues to unfold we see that jesus understood this about himself 
he referred to himself as God so much that people kept trying to kill him for it. John 10, 33. Jesus is like, hey, why are y'all trying to kill me? And the Jews respond like this. It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you. <laughs> we are going to stone you. But for blasphemy, because you, being a mere man, make yourself God. It's not until the very end of the Gospel of John that even his closest followers, his disciples, really begin to comprehend who he is, even though he's been telling them the entire way. Thomas, in John 20, 28, has to actually touch the resurrected Jesus before he can wrap his mind around the word became flesh. And then he cries out, my Lord and my God. There's more that can be said about these verses and how Jesus is the agent of creation. There's more that can be said about the significance of Jesus being identified as the word. And we could definitely spend more time talking about the Trinity and don't worry, we will in the coming weeks and months and years. We could spend this whole hour talking about these things. But this morning, I want us to make sure, kind of like we did with the book of Hebrews, I want to make sure that we don't miss the forest for the trees, which we can all too easily do in a text like this. We can just get lost in it, right? A bunch of theologians just sitting around trying to figure out how many angels can dance on the head of the pin of a needle, Right? D.A. Carson says we can not only miss the forest for the trees, but we can miss the forest by focusing all our attention on the third knot of the fourth branch from the bottom of the sixth tree from the left. And there's a place for that kind of examination of these verses. If you're witnessing to a Jehovah's Witness or to a Mormon, you're going to have to do some pretty intensive digging in verses 1 through 3. Uh, let me actually, uh, this isn't in my notes, but I just want to give it to you guys real quick. If you're ever doing that kind of evangelism and someone says, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and they'll, they'll try to say, well, in the Greek, and with your corrupted Bible translations, well, actually, it's not the Word was God, it was the Word was a God. Then you can get into a big argument about how to do Greek exegesis and, and grammar and all that stuff. It's not necessary. Just remember what I said to you in this morning's sermon. Regardless of how you translate that, it's pretty clear that it can't be referencing a God because Jesus was existent before all of creation. And that makes him God in himself. Okay. Now, for us here gathered together this morning, the main thing that I want us to understand is we set off into the book of John together is the purpose for which this gospel was written. I want us to understand why John is saying these things at the very beginning of this gospel in verses 1 through 3. And to understand that, you have to understand why the whole book was written. So turn with me to John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. <clears throat> Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones that, all the stuff that I've written for you in this book up till now, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there it is. The reason why this book exists is because John, as, as under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted those who heard it and who would read it and study it to believe in Jesus and to live in Jesus. Which is why John doesn't wait until chapter 10 or chapter 15 to unveil the identity of Jesus for his readers and listeners. He doesn't let the tension build ever so slowly as he pulls back one layer of mystery after the other until finally and fully he reveals who Jesus is. That's not what he does at all. He shows you in the very first verse of the very first page of this gospel exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is God so you better pay attention while you read. Read with care. Do not skim this gospel. The God of heaven and earth inspired John to take these things down so that people who are dead in sin would live in Christ. So, what's my application for you this morning? It's pretty simple. Pay attention. Pay attention to this book, brothers and sisters, visitors, friends. Pay attention as you learn about the ministry of Jesus. Pay attention as you learn about the identity of Jesus. Pay attention as you study the righteous life of Jesus. Do not fall asleep or sit on your cell phone scrolling through social media as we study Jesus being led to the cross where he gave up his life in your place so that you might live in him. Do not be a lackadaisical listener as you see in this book Jesus climbing out of the grave in victory over sin and hell and death and Satan. Pay attention. As Jesus tells you about life everlasting that can only be found in the eternal life that he had with the Father before the foundations of the world. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure that you're a Christian, pay very close attention as Jesus calls you to repent and to turn away from the sin that is killing you and to believe in him who can save you and give you everlasting joy. If you're here and you're struggling to believe, pay attention to this book. When we open our Bibles together in this room, don't just sit there staring at me. Open your Bible with us. Friends, if you're a member of this church, set a good example. Open the Bible with us. Look at this book with us. Study this book throughout the week. Come to Sunday morning prepared. Don't spend Saturday being reckless and then expect to come and receive from Jesus on Sunday as we look at this book. Listen to what I'm saying as I expound the text of this book. Now listen, paying attention will not guarantee, by any means, it will not guarantee that you will believe and have life in Jesus. But if you are a lazy listener, that can certainly keep you from hearing the very words of God himself as he speaks to you through his gospel. Let's pray. Father, we're desperate for your help.
We know that even when we come here on the best of occasions where we've had plenty of sleep, where we're not arguing with our spouse, where our, our job isn't causing us problems, where we're completely healthy, where we've been reading our Bible, when we've been encouraged by the rest of the service, even under all of these circumstances, it can still be difficult to listen to you, to give you the attention that you deserve, to not be distracted. But Father, you've called us here together, and we trust that it's not for nothing. So we ask for your grace. We ask that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, that it would prepare the soil of our hearts to receive from your word as John has it prepared for us in this gospel. Be kind to us, God. Help us to see Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.